Thank you to everyone that has tuned in thus far. The hustle and grind continues as we're now into season two of 52 Weeks of Hustle. I've had such a great time sitting down with industry leaders. Thank you to the leaders and for all the listeners and your continued support. In addition, thank you for everyone that has supported the book, Hustle Your Way to Success in Sports Sales, a playbook to being elite in the sports business industry. It's available on Amazon in ebook, paperback, and audio versions. Be sure to check out 52weeksofhustle.com. Enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to 52 Weeks of Hustle. I'm Travis Apple, and I'll be your host of this podcast. I've been fortunate to spend my entire career in the sports sales industry, and I wanted the opportunity to give back, to give back to those individuals that want to get in this business, and for those individuals that are in this business that want to continue to excel at an elite level. For those of you who know me, hustle has always been important, hence the name. Each week, I'm going to have the opportunity to sit down with industry professionals to talk about their career path, what it takes to be successful, and ultimately a few key takeaways for you to apply to your everyday. Without further ado, our guest this week. If you have to dream, you might as well dream big. Our next guest has always played competitive basketball, won an NCAA championship in college, played in the American Basketball League, and is now working in the WNBA. I'm excited to have Christy Hedgepath, Chief Operating Officer of the WNBA. Christy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Travis. I love what you're doing. I'm glad to be part of it. No, I really appreciate it. And I'm certainly excited for our conversation today and look forward to learning all about your career. Let's start from the beginning. You grew up in Thomasville, North Carolina and played at Westchester. You had an older sister and your mom and dad supported you in really anything you wanted to do. And you always found opportunities for you and many of those involved sports as you were a standout tennis and basketball player. So as I was getting ready for this podcast, I went deep into the archives and found an article from when you were in high school. And and listeners, you got to tune into this. Your senior year, you averaged 32 points, 12 rebounds, six assists, and five steals a game. Pretty impressive stats, but there was still some criticism on you and your team about holding your own versus some of the public schools. And so as you look back, how did some of that criticism back then help you overcome some of the naysayers and rejection that you've had to deal throughout your career? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, first of all, tip of the cap on the, uh, the deep dive there. Uh, no one has ever brought up those, those averages. And, and I did go to a really small school and I really thought that that was normal. Like I didn't think that that was that, you know, amazing. And, and I think in some ways, and, and you'll probably, we'll, we'll probably talk a lot about this today is just um, humility. My family just always kept me grounded. And, you know, things like, you know, accomplishments per se were not the most important thing. It was always about just sort of being humble and um, having good values and being a good person. And I, but the most important thing was that I, I wasn't playing to um, have great stats or to, um, to, to stack up to whatever people at the public schools thought. Um, but I just loved it. And I love playing. And it was just in, in my bones from day one. I, um, you know, I just always was drawn to basketball and team sports in particular. And so I didn't, I didn't really lose any sleep around the naysayers because that's not really why I was playing. I just played because I absolutely love the game. And that, you know, connects to um, today. It's just been a lifelong love that I can imagine probably a lot of your 
uh, listeners have that kind of shared passion for, for a sport or for basketball. And you know, when you certainly talk about that passion, right, you want to do what you love, which we're going to get into your career journey, but also, you know, you said something early on in there is like, you know, you just want to be around good people and have good support. And, you know, that's good things happen to good people that put themselves in a good position. And, you know, then lastly, the stats, like, you know, I could go on for probably an hour just talking about some of the stats and accolades from your high school and college career. Like I always knew that you were a good athlete and you're good in college and good in high school. I didn't realize till I actually started reading the numbers. I was like, wow, we got an all-star on our hands. So, and as, as Christy, as you're graduating high school, you're being heavily recruited from the likes of Duke and Wake Forest, which were certainly very close to where you grew up, but you end up going out to the West coast to Stanford university, clear across the country. Why was that the right move for you? Well, let me just go back to one thing you said. I'm just so glad that you have even more respect for me now than when we work together. So <laughs> keep digging, keep digging in the archive. I know, I'm going to have to. Um, you know, I, I was I was fortunate to be recruited, um, but I, I was so close to my family. I really was only looking at schools in North Carolina, like in the ACC, uh, I really had concentrated in, on tennis most of my life. And, you know, there was this big tennis boom in the seventies. My parents kind of got me into it and I played year round and, um, you know, I didn't even play year round basketball, but my junior year was asked to play, um, AAU and we luckily won the in, in North Carolina state tournament and got to go to the nationals. So we're talking about in between my junior and senior year, when usually like people have been recruited for years and years, right. but thank goodness, um, went to the nationals, Tara Vanderveer, now the winningest coach in women's college basketball history, still the coach at Stanford saw me and, you know, checked the grades and, um, and it looked like a fit. And so, so they started recruiting me and I didn't know that that was really an up and coming program. Um, they, I think they got into maybe like the elite eight the year before, but she was okay. building that program. And my coach was like, Whoa, wow. Stanford's recruiting you. I'm like, okay, tell me more. Right. And you have the academic reputation. So, um, you know, I, I took recruiting visits. I think I went to UNC Duke and wake. So three North Carolina schools and then Stanford and, um, while I had a good time at the other schools, I just knew that I knew instantly when I went to Stanford that it was going to be the right fit for me yep. um, because of, of the, I just, I never met a lot of other people who are women who were focused on basketball and academics in the way that I saw that the Stanford, you know, players were, and I love the campus. And my only reservation was going that, you know, really far away from home. And so uh, I, I knew in my gut that it was the right fit and that's what I needed to do. So I ended up not signing early because I just had to convince myself. Right. So Tell yourself on it. Spring. Yes, exactly. Exactly. You, you know, Chris, as you think back to the recruiting elements of some of the top programs that were recruiting you, and obviously you did some recruiting visits, what are some key things that stood out that have helped you continuously in your business career recruit some of the top talent? You know, we always talk about you want A's and, you know, McDonald's All-Americans. What are some of those yeah. key, key traits that, that you've learned from the recruiting process? Yes. I think one of the number one things is you've got to assess cultural fit. Because we would have some of the best basketball players in the country. I won't name any names that would come and do a visit at Stanford. 
But if they weren't the right cultural fit, like our coaches would say, hey, are they going to be the right fit? And there were times where we said no. Like, nope. No. And, and you know, that they would go on and go to another school and, and have a great career. But I, mean, I think the, the first thing is you have to assess cultural fit and you can't, you can't just look at talent. Um, and, and I know from, uh, you know, uh, you know how, both in business and in, and in basketball, we would recruit people. It's like you want to know that they've done their homework, that they that they really have looked into it for even their own edification about like, is this the right place for me? What is it that I love and that I'm drawn to and how can I be successful here? And so I really, really want to know that I'm just not another, you know, brand that they're looking to get a job. I think it really has to be genuine. Um, and, and so I think culture and just a genuine interest are things that I really like to. And I think that's great advice is, you know, as much as you're going to be being interviewed, you should be interviewing them and really you interviewing yourself to say, can you do this? Is this something you're going to be passionate about and want to do? And so you go back to your college basketball career, you know, at Stanford, the team made it to the NCAA final four, you know, in 91, you won the championship in 92. How is that experience for you? Yeah, you know, well, it's such a funny, um, it's interesting timing because for those of you that have followed um, the NCAA tournaments, both the men's and the women's, uh, Stanford won uh, the national championship, the women this year. And over and over and over on the broadcast, they kept saying, you know, before they won, Stanford hasn't won in 29 years. And then when they won, they were like, this is the first championship in 29 years. And so that like kind of made me gulp because I realized that 29 years ago was my sophomore year in college. So it makes you feel old, but I was just so thrilled for them because it is magical. It is something that is so hard. It is so hard to do. So many people are striving for a national championship. Um, It is, it is really, really special because no one can ever take it away, but it's really, again, the theme going back to, the people and and really being you know connected to the people on the team not just the starters everybody on the team the staff like that year in 92 was uh was it was magical as i said and what was really neat is that there was a rare and i think the team this year was close to it five starters average double figures and that is super rare it's impressive that, that, yeah. right so that's like each of those players could have gone somewhere else and been like an all-American and the star. Right. But what you had was a bunch of really, really, I think, talented people coming together to say, look, let's, let's win a national championship. Let's give ourselves a chance to do that. So, um, but it was thrilling. It was fun to run on the court, pour Gatorade on our coach, get the rings, you know, wow. cut down the nets. Um, really just thrilling. Well, I always ask my guests that have been fortunate to win rings. Sometimes, you know, when they're working for a team side, you obviously won playing. Do you ever wear the ring? Oh, yes. Nice. <laughs> Still That's- have the net, um, but I, I don't wear it all the time, but, but it's, uh, it's really special. No, that's awesome. And, and Chrissy, as you continued to dominate in college, you were ESPN's SB nomination for Women's Basketball Player of the Year, as well as an all Pac-10 nominee and team captain. You know, the thing about it is, is playing collegiately versus high school is just a huge beast. And, and then you went on to not only play collegiately, but be, you know, lack of a better term, a stud in college and, and won a championship. What were some key learnings from playing collegiate basketball that you still apply to your day to day? Mm-hmm. 
Oh, gosh, for sure. I mean, there's uh, a huge, I mean, this is a, an obvious one, the, the, uh, the discipline that you have to have. I mean, it is the conditioning alone will show you what you're made of. And, you know, these, the track workouts, like just the conditioning was, uh, I think, a, a separator in a lot of ways. You know, you got to really be ready and you have to be committed and work really hard. Um, I think also being a great teammate is something that I think I was good at it maybe at, in high school, but, but I think uh, going in to the, a program like Stanford and really knowing that, um, that the, the, the understanding and being a great teammate and being committed to that can really, really separate you um, from, from a lot of other people. And, and it's, it's filling, it's really rewarding. And to this day, I absolutely love being on, on great teams. Um, and we, uh, we set lofty goals literally every year. Our goal was to win the, at that time, the PAC 10 championship, right? Uh, which is now the PAC 12 and the national championship and not afraid, not afraid. We didn't, yeah. we didn't meet those goals every year, you know, two final fours and one national championship, but, but to set, you know, very ambitious goals and to just really go after those without just unapolog unapologetically. And then also, um, yeah, it's fun too, you know, right. and gotta have and, fun with uh, it. Yeah. And it's like, it's always been, uh, like kind of a, a sisterhood and a sorority. Um, but it's, it's to me, um, working hard and pushing yourself is fun. And we just, we had fun off the court as well. Right. You can't beat it. Well, many times if people are, are lucky enough to play in college, their career, you know, stops and they got to get into the real world right away. But for you, you're fortunate to keep it going as you end up playing for the Seattle reign of the American Basketball League at the time. How was it living out your dream playing professionally? Well, that's a great question because, you know, it's hard to do. And uh, I, I think at the time there was greater significance beyond me and just like, you know, as an individual being able to play professionally because um, because there were there was the, the ABL was just resurgent in terms of a women's professional league in the United States. So many players had to, women's players would have to go overseas if they wanted to keep playing. And so I actually helped start the ABL as the manager of player development. And so there was a bigger mission around like, you know, and now obviously the WNBA is thriving in our 25th season. We'll talk about that. But yep. um, there was a bigger mission around the importance of having uh, women and women's professional team sports be successful, be visible for boys and girls, for men and women domestically and globally. And, um, but, but as an individual, yes, it was so cool to, to earn a living, um, you know, basically playing basketball, working out, was in great shape, um, and just getting paid to sort of um, do something that not many people get to do. But I, I very much took it seriously to um, to, you know, be out in the community and, um, in, I played in Seattle yep. and, uh, I really took it seriously and I enjoyed that. It wasn't just about the game. It was, um, it was bigger than that. And so, um, I'm really proud of, 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 of that, hopefully small contribution. Absolutely. And, you know, during that time, you know, the NBA to your point was forming the WNBA 
and a hurdle came up for you, you know, and that, and all of a sudden, you know, the ABL filed for bankruptcy. So as that was going on, did you consider trying to make it a move into the WNBA or was it said, you know what, I've enjoyed my playing career. It's time to, to move on to a, a career path. More the latter, more okay. the latter. I thank goodness my entire high school and college career, I hadn't had a major injury. I had not missed one game and all of high school and college and unfortunately, my first year playing professionally, I tore my ACL. And so that was a really transformative moment because I just started thinking about life after basketball, even though I came back. Yep. Um, and then when the ABL folded, I knew the whole league would be sort of going into the WNBA. So it certainly would be challenging. But um, but then some people did. I decided to, um, you know, I really wanted to build a career and I wanted to integrate sports into that career. And when I was working for the ABL, I realized that I needed more business chops. Like I knew I wanted my career to be in sports, but I, I really felt like I could accelerate my business career by going and getting my MBA. So that's when I, um, I went back to school. I went to business school um, at Duke, which is a FICO school of business. And yep. uh, that, was, that was my decision. It was any athlete, when you leave the game, whatever level, it's hard. And you, you are kind of you know, it's a transition. It is a huge part of your identity. Um, but I, I really tried hard not to not to look back. No, absolutely. And to your point, you end up getting back to North Carolina, attended Duke University and got your MBA that, that really triggered your sports path, which we're going to dive into. And, you know, the kind of the closing the, the loop on the basketball career. What was your best memory of playing basketball from growing up to college to, to professionally? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Obviously, the national championship was great, but honestly, my, my, my favorite moment was my sophomore year. So I'll set it up my freshman year. I guess, you know, hopefully most people know of uh, Pat Summit, um, legendary women's coach at Tennessee who uh, had a battle with, with uh, Alzheimer's dementia and passed away. But she was at the top of her game in, during my career in, uh, in the mid-90s. And so early in mid-90s, my freshman year. We played them twice in the regular season and once in the final four and lost to them three times. Three okay. times in one year, just beat down. And my sophomore year, uh, this was before conference play. We played them at Stanford and we were down by 12 with, they were number one in the country. We were down 12 with three minutes to go. We came back and sent it into overtime and we won. And that was my favorite celebration of all time because we were on our home floor. We had finally redeemed ourselves against Pat Summit. The look yeah, on our they face. They had beaten you up happy. the year before. Yeah, that was a great one. And then I think that actually set the tone for us to believe in ourselves in big moments and to eventually that year win the national championship. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Again, we're here on 52 Weeks of Hustle. The guest today, Christy Hedgepath, Chief Operating Officer of the WNBA. So, Christy, your first couple roles after your MBA there at Duke in the sports business world was on the brand side of things. You worked for Russell Athletics, Spalding, and Under Armour. And so with those roles, you were the manager of consumer marketing, managing director of basketball equipment, and GM of digital sport, respectively, for those brands. And you were with those organizations for a combined 12-plus years. You know, several questions on that time of your life and in your first part of your career in the sports world. How do you feel like working with those different brands has helped to get you to where you're at today? Yeah, you know, it's um, those brands were different types of brands. Russell and Spalding were really legacy brands that were looking to um, to kind of restart and rebrand themselves uh, as more relevant um, than they had been. They sort of gotten a little bit dusty. And so, uh, you know, a lot of um, the consumer roles that I had, I think were a lot about repositioning the brand. And that's kind of been a theme in, in my career. Um, and then, um, but Under Armour was obviously, I mean, an explosive brand um, coming onto the scene. I was there, when I got there, we were 750 million in sales. Four and a half years later, we were 3 billion. Um, I clearly, I can take credit for all of that, um, that growth, but no, four, four, four. Just to see, yeah, be a part of that. Yes. So different experiences to your question, I think were very formative for me. And then in both cases, I was able to, um, do a lot of consumer, uh, marketing work and consumer insights, but, uh, I also had an opportunity in both cases to run, um, business units. So at Spalding, I was asked to um, run our basketball equipment division. So I had, for the first time, P&L responsibility, profit and loss. And, yep. um, and then at Under Armour to start a new division called Digital Sport, um, which was challenging and, and we struggled. But it was, it was a great experience for me um, to, to have another business unit and that general management experience under my belt. Um, so I think those experiences... Um, built a lot of perspective and, 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 I, and, and generated a lot of confidence, I think, about um, what I could do. And I was asked to, you know, to, to assume those roles. And, um, and I think that's something that um, you know, gave me a lot of confidence. Yeah, absolutely. And as you think about some of the back in that time, some of those marketing strategies and consumer focused strategies and processes, what are some similarities from you know, ultimately like selling tickets you know, yeah. within, a, within the WNBA to selling brand and apparel. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 
it's very similar because essentially at the root of all of this is is what is your value proposition what is it everybody has choices whether it's choices in footwear or you know a t-shirt they have choices in entertainment and then within that they have choices within sports and so um you know this is in our industry it's about you know an investment of their money but also their time and so so i think understanding um what makes your brand unique and why that matters to your fans or consumers is the to me the skill and so um, when you think about um, like Spalding and what we tried to do, it was all about connecting to the deepest and the highest product quality and reliability. Whereas with Under Armour, it was, hey, look, these are some really uh, you know high profile athletes that are using our products and these are uh, very performance oriented and innovative and telling that that story um, and, and why you should buy these products. And, uh, and then from, a ticketing perspective, I know specifically in the W, you know, we believe, I mean, the product is, is incredible. Um, and it's also about how do we position that? How do we also tell the stories of our players and what they're all about so that we're able to draw in as many people as possible. And our value proposition is that we are different, that we have very, very, um, you know, forward thinking players and we have the best, you know, women's basketball uh, around. And, and so, uh, so, so it's really about that value proposition. What is it that makes you different and how can you really lean into that to resonate with, with either your core consumers or who you're trying to get to be, to be your new consumer? And I think that's great advice from a value proposition, you know, for all the listeners out there, like no matter what you're selling, no matter what product, what team, what sport, what is that value proposition you're providing to each person, whether it's B2C, B2B, groups, et cetera. And, you know, as, as you think back of to Russell Athletics, Spalding, Under Armour, you know, those are massive brands in the sports space. And I, you know, a lot of listeners may be looking at getting jobs like on the team side where, there might be 150 to 200 people on the team side, you know, in each individual team. But as you think about those brands, what were some of the sizes of those organizations? And was it easy to see a, a career path with them? Yes, I think so. So, so Spalding and Russell were somewhat similar. I would say um, a few hundred million dollars to 500 million, you know, mid, mid uh, nine figures that is um, with, you know, 500 to 1,000 employees. And then Under Armour, because they had, at the time, a lot of uh, retail outlets. I mean, Under Armour had about 5,000 employees. And as I said, um, we were about 3 billion in sales when I left. So, um, Massive. you know, it, it's, it's it, I don't think that um, many organizations do an excellent job of clearly showing, like, what is the career path? And so, and I'm so glad you asked the question because, you know, um, as you know, your listeners, it's who, who may be earlier in their career or maybe not, but, you know, it's, it can be confusing sometimes. And so I haven't always had a, a, a you know, specifically clear line of sight, but what I have always focused on and what has worked for me is just to um, embrace the assignment that you have at the time. And and really, really build relationships and demonstrate that you can be counted on, demonstrate that you will work hard. And, um, and then opportunities then present themselves. 
And so, you know, I, I've always tried to meet as many people as I can within the organization, whether it was a medium, small, medium, or large, to, um, and also to sort of raise your hand or volunteer for other um, assignments or other committees or smaller projects that give you exposure to other people in the organization. And what's great about that is they get to see what you're about, but you also get insight into different parts of the business. And so um, I just think being entrepreneurial about your own career within your environment is uh, something that um, I've enjoyed and is something that I would, would really recommend to anyone. Absolutely. And, you know, even to that point of like dominating your day, you know, your, <laughs> whatever job you have in, in, in front of you, dominate that and, and continue to build your brand. And, you know, after being on the brand side for over a decade, you make the move to the NBA league office with Teambo. We've had several Teambo guests here on 52 Weeks of Hustle. Yes. And so what did you enjoy most about your experience working with the NBA, WNBA and G League teams? Yeah, you know, I, well, first of all, I absolutely love Teambo. Um, and you and I obviously were teammates, as you yep. said, in Teambo. It's a very special group of people. Uh, and that group is committed, you know, so committed to helping teams. That's the, that's the whole mission of, of Teambo. And so it was um, really fun for me to, what I liked the most is going into the different markets. And the, it was, it's fascinating to see different teams and different situations. There might be a team that is trying to um, get established, a team that is more mature, a team that is sort of overhauling their brand, a team that is on the up, you know, upswing and, uh, and versus and vice versa. Uh, so I really enjoyed the variability um, and the challenge of advising teams in different um, sort of states of growth and states of the business. Um, and then I think, um, more than that, I, I love meeting the, the people um, who were investing and interested in careers in sports and teams because as we talked about at the beginning, there's just something kind of special that kind of ties, I think all of us together. There's something that draws us to the industry and that is a, it's just a cool connection and it's palpable and, um, and it, it is really, really um, something that stands out to me is just really connecting with um, like-minded people in the industry. No, absolutely. And now I know in Teambo, you know, one of your big projects was driving youth basketball initiatives across all the leagues. And that's certainly a huge hot button in sports world right now. So for the listeners, what is one thing that you think each team should be doing to really drive the youth interest, you know, in the team and in the sport? Yes. Yes. I, I loved working on a youth basketball because it, it's really such an opportunity, I think, for professional sports teams, because I always said, I mean, if, if anyone should be known for youth basketball in a given market, it should be the NBA team. And I was really focused on NBA uh, youth uh, development. Um, but I would say it's twofold. So, um, and it's kind of like this, Travis, it's, it's to me, it's old school and new school. Old school in the sense that it's about grassroots basketball. This is about the uh, clear correlation, and we know this from research, between uh, if you play basketball, you will be much more likely to be a fan of basketball later and be a sponsor or a season yeah. ticket member or what have you. So, um, you know, that should be something that teams should be owning in their markets is, is really participation, whether that's camps and clinics or leagues, is really, really getting involved. But of course, uh, youth are, uh, you know, Gen Z and <laughs> This is about being on digital platforms. 
um, you know, whether that's Instagram or, you know, Snapchat and creating content that is short form and right. exciting for them to consume. So I think it's old school and new school. Yeah, you got to have the combo of both and run parallel paths with both. And, you know, Christy, a few years ago, you were promoted to the role you're in now, Chief Operating Officer for the WNBA, where you'd previously been serving as the interim CEO for several months. And so you're overseeing WNBA strategy, business development, and all the marketing functions. So what does a day-to-day look like for you? Well, uh, I can just... (laughs) What I love about it is it's different every day. It's (laughs) truly like the entire business. And I really enjoy this role because of that. Um, So earlier today, we were doing all-star planning. We have our all-star game coming up. I have conversations with with, uh, partners, marketing partners, like we recently announced Google. Uh, I later today have a meeting with all of our team presidents. And one of our topics will be um, even though we're in this season, it will be long range planning. What's the future? And what's the future? And then even some technologies and cool innovations that we're working on. So um, it's really um, intellectually stimulating, challenging to balance it all. But I, I love the kind of full, full spectrum of, of topics and, and aspects of the business. I truly enjoy that. It's a perfect lead into the next question is, you know, you talk about, you know, later today, you're going to be talking to the, the presidents about, you know, the, the three, four or five year plan. And, you know, through your time as COO and that proactive planning, you spent time putting together a five year strategy that you know, really helped lead a brand refresh, including a new logo design. And, and part of that was the WNBA has always stood for diversity, inclusion, equality, and certainly has the potential to be even more culturally relevant in the future. So, what were some key learnings when you guys ultimately launched kind of that brand and new logo that went into that? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's, it's an important question because what the, the WNBA has, has, you know, really generated so much more cultural relevance, I think, than we had. And, and, and I would say boiling it all down, essentially, it was about leaning into who we are, acknowledging that our, what our DNA is, and really leaning into that. So in the past, I would say that, you know, a league that's you know, all women, 80% women of color, some subset of the LGBTQ plus community was, you know, in 2005, a liability. And we, now it's really becoming an asset. And we started leaning into that. And then when I say lean into it, our players are so brave and have been who, They've always been, and well before um, you know the social unrest from last summer and George, George Floyd and even Me Too, our players were out there and um, really leading and at the forefront of change, and um, that is something that matters to people. And so um, now, obviously, that that is uh, that 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 bodes well for our conversations with marketing partners and media right. partners because we're different. There's a real value proposition there. And, um, but I think it's really about who are you, what's your DNA and lean into that unapologetically. You're not, not everybody, the WNBA isn't for everybody and any brand isn't for everyone. And so you're not going to make everyone happy. Um, And so I think that we've been um, very self-assured and self-directed and um, that has, has really helped us grow quite a bit. And the league itself has had a ton of success, which we'll certainly dive into. And you're know, talking about media coverage, you know, 
recently ESPN aired the documentary 144 on the WNBA and looking, it was really looking back at the 2020 season that was held in Bradenton, Florida because of the pandemic. And the documentary really demonstrated the sense of urgency around some of those societal issues and showing how the WNBA really took that commitment to the next level. So how has that buzz around the documentary really helped lead into, you know, kind of the current 21 season? Mm-hmm. No, it was, it was, um, you know, ESPN came to us. First of all, we did not let anyone, you have to remember, this was, you know, last summer, June, very early in the pandemic. In the middle of it. Yep. Oh, yeah. We didn't let anyone, any media um, other than Holly Rowe, um, who was there the entire time, tested every single day. We didn't let anyone into the bubble because we didn't want to take any chances. We wanted to keep our players safe. Um, but ESPN, you know, asked, and they're our largest partner, been with us for 25 years, if they could do a documentary. And we, you know, it was a very small crew and we thought, yeah, that, that would be a good idea. Uh, and we, we had no idea what would unfold, but we did know that the players, again, being who they are um, and really committed to social justice, they dedicated the season to Breonna Taylor. So we knew it was kind of special, it was really unique. And then fast forward, as you said, 144 was the name of the documentary. And um, it, it has just continued this, um, I think, awareness and exposure of the W um, and um, how incredibly compelling and unique the players are uh, as people, as athletes. And that just generates more and more. It's just really feeding on itself. It's really creating the flywheel effect. And I feel it every day in social chatter and sponsor or marketing partner conversations. Um, It's really palpable. Um, But that documentary um, you know, turned out really, really well. So I would recommend anyone to, if you, if you want to know what it was really like inside the wobble, um, you, you can watch it. It's pretty fun too. I mean, a lot of heavy topics, but, uh, you see the personality of the players also. And that's awesome. And that just goes to show, you know, around that value proposition is more than just a game. Right. And, you know, there's also been some other really exciting news from the WNBA recently with the commissioner's cup announcement. So can you share what that tournament's going to look like? Yes. So we are, uh, you mentioned earlier, our five-year growth strategy. Um, we have very, very specific strategic pillars that will um, spur our growth. Like we had to really figure out, well, how are we, if we want to, we really want to accelerate our business. What's going to be different? What new, new value are we going to create? So we launched a new competition, as you said, called the Commissioner's Cup, which is really exciting there's basically 60 games of the regular season are designated as commissioner's cup games and the top team in each conference uh at the end of those uh and you can check the standings right now on the WNBA app or website will be able to compete in one game for uh, a chance to win five hundred thousand dollars and that is is you know is a huge huge prize pool a um, huge prize yeah players are really really motivated and uh, so you guys can check kind of the standings right now. I think, I think Seattle and Connecticut are atop the, the standings right now, but um, that will be uh, actually on Amazon, uh, on, on Amazon Prime, uh, which is really exciting. That was a new media partnership. Uh, so they'll be broadcasting that or streaming that uh, on August 12th. Nice. And that's, you know, kind of leads into the next point, you know, in addition, the WNBA launched the Changemakers platform where Google will be a big part of it, as well as Amazon, which has come on board to stream the game. So, you know, looking at that, to have the names and the brands of Google and Amazon to be partnering with the WNBA, like how exciting is those partnerships for you guys? 
I mean, it's thrilling. I mean, it's really, you know, that we've, we've, um, we've tapped into something and that we're really spurring growth, genuine growth and demand when you have brands like Amazon and Google and Deloitte and Nike and AT&T and others that have joined. Uh, so it's, uh, it's not easily accomplished and we're so appreciative and, um, you know, we're just, uh, the Changemakers platform is an elevated platform. And it's, it's really the, these like-minded companies that are saying, you know what? We really, we really want to support the W. We want to lift women's sports. We know there's so much potential and we, we believe what the league stands for. So it's been uh, a really, really successful platform for us. Awesome. And, and over the last few years, this, the WNBA has certainly seen growth in revenues and media and in sponsorship. And, and certainly this isn't an easy league to sell, especially during these times. So what do you feel like the leagues and teams are doing on such a consistent basis to have those continued successes? Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of, um, I think there's really a lot of collaboration, I think, between the league and the teams about where we want to go, who we want to be, how we want to present ourselves, um, you know, both at at the teams and and the league. And so there's really, I'd say, a lot of collaboration, which is sometimes difficult to do. And, um, you know, there are a lot of really committed leaders, both at the league and at teams. And so, you know, a lot of the things we've already hit on, but just around um, our value proposition and really around being differentiated, I think, has been uh, and really marketing and really making sure that we we target a younger, more digitally savvy consumer and and really make our kind of approach very values based. We really lead with that and and, and focusing on our players. I think those Absolutely. are some themes that have helped. Yeah. Absolutely. You, you, some of the things that we've talked about on this podcast is, is certainly that value proposition. So now I'll kick it to you from a, a value proposition and, and somewhat of a sales pitch. You know, as you think about the next few years, what should people in the sports business be so excited for when it comes to the WNBA? Well, I'll tell you what, growth. That's what they should be excited about. And we want great talent. We want to continue to build um, leaders um, in the W, whether that's at the league in New York or whether that's at our teams. And uh, you never know. I mean, there could be more teams one day. And so, um, you know, without question, our teams are growing and uh, we need talent. And so I think there's just so much opportunity in the W uh, and to be part of what truly is unprecedented growth. Uh, think about where the league is at this point. And so I think being part of that, something that is historic, is is uh, is really attractive and, and i hope that that people will um will, will really check us out and and get involved and 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 explore opportunities to join us i'm certainly excited about that and, and christy you know as we discussed you've certainly had a, a great career and over 20 years of experience looking back throughout your career and you've got a lot of really exciting things coming as well what's been your best memory of the career yep uh gosh I think my best memory for me has really been um, it, it was coming over in many ways to to the leagues, leagues, the NBA family, because me for me as a basketball player through and through um, getting to to work for the leagues is the best way to directly impact the game itself. And whether that was youth basketball that we talked about before or what 
what I'm helping to do now in the WNBA is directly impacting the game, which, and the reason that that matters is because I think that the game gives so much to all of us. And it, uh, it really, really has given me a lot. And I just love, as you give back, you know, to the industry for me, helping to get the W on better footing, uh, helping to build youth basketball um, is giving back um, to the game that's given me so much. No, absolutely. And Christy, to hear from someone that has that played and lived out their dream and now has a career and, you know, and a passion for the industry they've always wanted to be in, it's, it's been awesome. And so to close it out, I like to put our guests on the hustle hot seat. So you ready for this? Yes, let's do it. All right. If you could bring back any fashion trend, what would it be? Bring back any fashion trend. Well, some of the fashion trends from my high school have already come back, like acid wash jeans. Yeah mom jeans you know the uh what is it members only jackets uh but one that has not come back i don't know and i'd love to see you wear them is maybe leg warmers i know i always kind of joke i'm like i'll just leave this stuff in my closet because eventually it's going to come back and be popular that's, again that's question. <laughs> <laughs> it, so you know obviously we talked a lot about you just being such an athlete and still being an athlete and so you know if you went out and played any sport right now what would you go out and play it's a tie it's a tie between i think beach volleyball has to be so awesome because you're outside all the yeah. time you're in great shape they can jump like they're just super fit and golf just because i absolutely love playing golf and right now i can't because i've had all these back surgeries back, yeah <laughs> no, that makes sense. Well, you know, growing up and, and certainly through your college career, you, you, I'm sure you had a, a pretty healthy diet that you're always on. And so now if you had to eat one meal for the rest of your life, you know, barring you didn't have to worry about anything else, what would it be? I think my, if I can find a good one, it has to be really, really good. I don't know if I can eat it every meal for the rest of my life, but I love an incredible huevos rancheros. That I love. Yes. yes, that is for sure. Well, awesome. To close it out, Christy, what are three key takeaways you'd give every listener to be in your shoes one day? I, honestly, I, I think it's, it's, it's very simple. It, it's really about um, being, ha- having, striving to have the highest integrity, striving for the highest possible level of integrity that you can, uh, being genuine in your deeds and your words and your actions. And um, something that I know you embrace and appreciate is just simply work ethic and just, you know, really being committed to hard work. Absolutely. You, you think about, you know, high integrity, being genuine, you know, almost we, we kicked off this podcast with just being a good person, surround yourself with good people. And yes, work ethic goes a long way all the time. And Christy, thank you so much. It's certainly been a pleasure talking to you. I appreciate your time, your expertise and our friendship. Loved it so much. Thanks for the time, Travis. Again, this is Travis Apple, and thank you for listening to 52 Weeks of Hustle. Be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. We'll be back next week with another industry leader. Have a great week.